Hi, this is Phil. This is the sixth episode of the Special Game Changers podcast series with Dr. Henry Masoma. We're looking at team creators today. Let's do it. Henry, why are teams so important? What is all of the research from the world of business and commerce and entrepreneurship and enterprise that so many of the graduates of our schools are going to go into. What's all that research telling us about team? The, the research that is out there is telling us that there is a maximization of outcomes when people work in these spaces of teamwork. And it's important, Phil, that we distinguish between groups and teams. There's a lot of people that were in groups, but there's very few of us that actually have the privilege of working in teams. And how those are defined is, um, is, is very specific in some areas. You know, some people say a, a team is one where they've gone through all the, the stages of team development that allow them to come to a place where they're comfortable within themselves and their truest selves show up. Makes sense. It's, it's one where they actually carry each and everyone, each other's burdens. But that's how some teams are defined. Um, so I think the research also says that it increases efficiency. Some people might say it actually slows things down. But um, to borrow from a, an author, his name is Patrick Lencioni, he talks about how if you give me a group of people that are all rowing in the same direction at the same time, I could turn around any company you give me on the planet. He's a very interesting author, Lencioni, and he's very influential in terms of the applicability of his thinking um, across industry sectors. So it's, he's, uh, educators pay attention to Patrick Lencioni. Um, uh, it's a little bit like Daniel Kahneman. He's, an, he's, a, he's another thinker and writer. Um, Carol Dweck, obviously, you know, there are some really powerful thinkers uh, around that. How would I know if I'm in a team? as opposed to a group? Miss one meeting. Miss one meeting and see how they respond. I feel I want to push it further to even say there's some classroom spaces that instructors create that actually simulate a team environment versus a group. And uh, I didn't share this with you last week. One of the things that I do, Phil, is... Every day after class, I shake hands with the young ladies. I make sure that everybody leaves out of one door. And I give hugs to all my young male students. And last week, I was caught up in a conversation with a student, a, a young lady. And I, I noticed, Phil, that these young men have become accustomed to giving a hug that they waited for me. They did not leave the room. And it brought me a sense of confidence in the fact that we had developed a community environment. So this whole idea of teams is goes back to the village in Africa. When one of us dies, when we lived in the village, it was everybody's funeral. And so when you ask me, how do I know when I've seen a team? I think when I'm in a team or I see a team, I see people that are not just about the task, but they're even about the relationships. So it's both. So you need to be inspired by a relationship and proximity. That's 
you have That's to correct. you have to have the ability to collaborate, and that collaboration needs to be compassionate. It's got to, which is the heart. It's got to be meaningful, which is the head, and it's got to be productive, which is the hands. That's correct. Good imagery. <laughs> so heart, head, hands. We're working all of those together. We need to do that in a way that is relational rather than cold. So there's got to be warmth there, but it's got to be real. So we've got to acknowledge that within a team, there will be times where we don't like each other very much, but we still get on. And other times where we're all over each other, we think that everybody else is is really, really great. Through that, there needs to be, therefore, some pervading sense of higher purpose that connects us, as well as some sort of sense that, that what we're doing brings all of us the best possible outcomes. So we have to legitimate self-interest and we have to promote selflessness at the same time. That's correct. In fact, I think a lot of people make a mistake when we think about teams, Phil, they think of uh, when you hear the word consensus. I don't know, how do you feel about the word consensus? Do you uh, have any emotional uh, response to it? It's it, 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 In my context, it's in the Australian context, it, there's a very specific usage of it that goes back to the 1980s um, uh, when we were at a time where we were reconstructing our economy. Funnily enough, under a left-wing government, uh, we, were, we were creating a market economy under, under, a, under a centre-left Labour Party government. Um, and we talked about consensus all the time, which was essentially uh, a code speak for bringing people together so that we didn't have conflict and strike action. And it was just used so much. And uh, it's, every time I hear it now, it just takes me back to a place. I don't know. I'm, I, I, look, I, I struggle with the notion of consensus as an absolute concept because it privileges what we call the tyranny of harmony at circle so the, and the tyr- tyranny of harmony is the way in which we prevent each other from hearing the truth because we're worried it will upset other people so in, in so instead we create um, a fiction and we all share in that fiction it's almost like the emperor's new clothes you know you know, the, the, so, uh, like an artificial, artificial harmony, if you will. Absolutely, where you sit there and go, well, we're so worried that we're going to offend people, we're so worried that we're going to upset people, that we're going to construct a world that isn't real. And in schools, this takes the form of a myth that everybody's doing a great job. We're all doing a great job. Okay. Everybody's doing a great job. Well, what if we're not? What if we're not doing a great job? What if some of us do a great job this month and then the next month we don't do such a great job? How do we engage with that with honesty to build performance? Uh, and, and, and I do think, you know, and again, we, we see this in our research in education, that if you have a group of people with a shared set of values and a shared culture and a notion that there is community, but that community does not genuinely promote learning. It does not genuinely promote change. It has no real sense of performance being the, 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 the obtaining of better outcomes for people. Then it is a group. It, it is not a team. That's, that's awesome. Um, I appreciate you kind of walking me through the, uh, the, the whole consensus piece. And the reason why I asked you is this. I've arrived at a comfortable spot with that word. My, my gut reaction is similar to yours when I hear it. But I like to think of it as 100% percent 
support, not a hundred percent agreement. And so you and I have an idea, we fight it out like just cats and dogs. But after we agree to act in one direction, we're gonna move in unity. That's after we've done our closed door meetings where we duped it out. And now we're saying, all right, you know what? This is the route we're going. So it ties us back to Lencioni, and I pulled up Lencioni to, uh, just a little while ago in his five dysfunctions of a team. The first dysfunction he brings up is the absence of trust. You know, Then the second one is the fear of conflict. Then the third one is a lack of commitment. The fourth one is avoidance of accountability. Then the last one is your mom's favorite, inattention to results. He said she was detail-oriented. Yes. The finer things, you know, and stuff like that. So anyway, um, what I'm, what I, I'm afraid, especially with the, our young generation going back into our schools and the discussion you and I are having, is that there is such a fear of conflict that we live almost in this global kumbaya moment of we can't offend each other, I can't disagree with you. So how do we bring this global changer to a place where they're comfortable with conflict? And I think that's, uh, I think relationality lies in the heart of that because if we've got a genuinely strong relationship, then we've got the capacity to do that. So uh, I really love that notion um, uh, uh, of looking at Lencioni as a series of five problems or challenges, uh, a taxonomy of them, a hierarchy of problems that need to be overcome in order to achieve team. I wonder if we can then flip that around and say, what are the positives of relationality that are going to enable us to get to the stage we need? And again, I'm going to draw on um, the educational research that we've done globally um, at Circle. So it starts with a person who is inspired to become an honourable colleague who recognises our common humanity and works to enhance it. So if I've got that, I can disagree with you and I can walk out of the room and whatever the agreed solution is, we both honour it and we both work towards it even if we didn't back it to start with. The second thing that we see from the research is, and, and, and this here I think pulls apart that notion of tyranny of kindness because it doesn't mean that we're not civil with each other. We need to use respect kindness and appreciation for individual enterprise, shared endeavour, the things that you do, I do, we do, that give us a sense of team. We must have a generosity of spirit and we need to use that shared appreciation and generosity of spirit to overcome isolation, to overcome alienation, to overcome selfishness that divides people and organisations. And the third thing then is that we must engage and work with others towards a common good. If we are talking about personal ambition, if we are talking about personal profit, if we are talking about personal gain, then we legitimise as leaders a discourse that says, I'm in it for me. All of us need self-interest. All of us need our needs, uh, require our needs to be met. Yet, if we don't give primacy to the notion of that which is the common good, then we've got a problem. And the common good might be a higher goal, it might be um, uh, a set of corporate objectives, it might be a set of um, 
targets. I mean, there's different ways to do that. It doesn't have to be some warm, fluffy thing. It can be, you know, really quite hard-edged around that. But unless we can recognise the common good in it, we're stuck. We're stuck without um, uh, uh, that sense of team. We're in a group, and that group is motivated by me rather than us. Well, that's good. That's really, really, really good. And that's a struggle I have even with the idea of uh, putting my young, my children, my own children through the public school education system in the United States. It's uh, sometimes very regional in its approach. Um, and so the us piece sometimes can be difficult to teach or to infuse into the young people given the system that we have. And also, you know, I don't know about Australia, you know, the size of the country of the United States sometimes uh, makes it challenging and the geographic nature of how we're positioned. You know, we're so big that there's some people that will never leave Texas and be excited about it. Anyway, going back to um, the points that you raise, this notion of teamwork and a higher issue that unites us makes me go back to the virus that we're experiencing right now in the world. It makes me think of the scientists that are working in Senegal right now with a goal of getting tests quickly produced to serve these people on the African continent, but they're working in collaboration with their peers at the CDC or with their peers in Europe. I think in those moments, we're at our best as human beings. Now, Phil, the question I have for you, especially as one who's done a lot of training across the globe, is how do we... We don't need disaster or, or crises to teach this stuff. In, in, in peacetime, if you will, if, in times when there's no disaster, how do we teach this to these young people? Oh, it's such a good question. I'm, I'm, I have to say I'm really conflicted by this because when I look at the research that we've done with teachers everywhere, again and again and again, really good teachers, really good leaders of teachers, really strong voices for parenting will tell us that adversity, both for individuals and teens, is a really important factor in growing character and competency. And then they'll start talking about doing it hard, and then they'll start talking about grit, and then they'll start talking about all sorts of things like that, and then they'll say that under conditions of adversity, we see people's true character emerge. And I just disagree with that. I think character is something that emerges in all sorts of contexts. Um, you can judge my character just as well in times of comfort by the grace with which I act or don't act as you can um, how well I show resolve and consideration when times are tough uh, around that. That having been said, let's put, let's put Phil's qualms aside around that sort of thing and say that there is, and let's say that there is a large body of work that's being assembled in the community of inquiry and practice of schools and colleges and institutions all over the world that says you must put individuals and teams under adversity if you want to see them grow in character and competency. How do we do that though? Well, we're still assembling the evidence um, as to how to do that properly. Um, uh, I read an, uh, uh, an excellent piece in the New York Times um, uh, yesterday 
which was talking about the challenge of coaching in your country. So you've got millions of volunteer coaches, um, perhaps up to you know so, so, somewhere near, I think, seven or eight million coaches. And if the evidence from the studies is anything to go by, anywhere up to a third of them are doing a bad job. They're shouting at kids, they're abusing kids, they're pushing them too hard, they've got no understanding of the nuance that is required to coach uh, and so on. And in fact, what they're doing is that they are driving kids away from participating in the sports that they're supposed to be doing. Um, and you know, and kids will say this was a 1993 study, but it, it seems to have some applicability. There's a t- 2014 study that, that, that the article cites as well too, where they where they say the number one reason why kids drift away from sport is because their coach doesn't make it enjoyable for them, and that means that not only are they not having fun, they're not experiencing a sense of growth, they're not experiencing a sense that their humanity um, is is being enhanced by the process. So somewhere in here, we've got to build an idea that, yes, adversity is important, but so is dignity, and so is worth, and so is um, efficacy, and all of those sorts of things that we've been talking about over the last um, six podcasts. I'm so excited. I just want to share something that I've done with um, in the last seven years. I, I developed a program for lower socioeconomic students to go to a place called Heifer Ranch. It's in Arkansas, the state of Arkansas. And so I would select about 20 students, or 15, between 15 and 20 students, would load up in a van and drive out to this place where they did simulation of global poverty. And they've created these spaces that actually are built the way they would be in these places where there's poverty. So there was a Zambian hut, actually. There was an Indonesian hut, I mean, Indonesian residence and they t- took away our cell phones and everything. Then they gave us the supplies that a family in that region would have for the night. And we had to spend the night living as they would, and they gave us instructions. Phil, in less than four hours, the ugliness that I saw in my students was mind-blowing of this exercise. Wow. By, by midnight, I had students that were hoarding things and hiding things and were angry and I thought to myself, this is a simulation. We'll be done by morning. But there's people that live like this every day. In fact, one trip, one of the students actually was so frustrated, he ended up going to the van and sleeping in the van. So I thought that that was a very successful exercise that we did. And each time we came back from that trip, the students that went on that trip built a sense of camaraderie, a sense of togetherness that was pretty, pretty amazing to watch. And so I kind of do subscribe to the idea of some kind of defining common struggle in defining a team. You know what I mean? What defines us? It's like America. A lot of people like to say, where were you when 9-11 happened? That was a defining moment for a lot of Americans in the United States. You know what I mean? When the Twin Towers happened. Mm. So then maybe one day you and I will say, Henry, what were you doing when coronavirus first hit? And we'll have this history, shared history, maybe that allows us to continue as global collaborators because we've dealt with something together, you know? I think, I think we've, um, we've explored the notion of the things that we shared really. I, I, I'm comfortable where, where we've got with it. Um, 
as you were talking then, I was reminded of um, Jane Elliott's famous experiment in race of blue eyes and brown eyes, where she put um, people under conditions of significant discomfort um, to help them realise that, um, uh, you know, that, 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 that their whole, whole worldview was being shaped by the cultural context from which they came. Um, uh, and that, you know, that, that, that there were structural um, problems of discrimination and uh, in, in, in what they're doing. I'm interested in diversity, and perhaps this can be the last topic that we talk about in this particular podcast. We hear being said frequently by people who are progressive in nature that if we have a team with people of diverse background, automatically the process and the outcome will be better. What do you think of that? I 100% agree. And I'll tell you why. I have been in meetings. In fact, I'll tell you the example. I, I could do better with this. Uh, Phil, I got the privilege of being invited to serve on the on the jury in the United States court for a person that was being accused of having um, strangled his wife. And when I got to, to be a part of this jury, there was a gentleman in the room that if I held him to my stereotypical biases, the way he looked, his race and everything, I thought... If there's a man that's going to force us to put this young African-American male, black male, behind bars, it's going to be this gentleman. But the beauty that came out of that room when everybody gave their viewpoints on the crime situation, that man brought the best gift for that conversation that day. He spoke in such a compassionate manner that I thought, wow, if we didn't have this collective gathering of people of different diverse backgrounds, this guy would have been locked behind bars. And this old man... Um, to me that day reminded me of the significance of multiple viewpoints. And it's not always about race, it's about experiences. You know, that I I think everybody on this planet has what I like to call um, cultural blind spots or blind spots that are put on us by, by way of how we were raised. You know, Phil, I'm reminded of my first job in, when I moved to, uh, started teaching at Texas A&M. I was, my wife and I had just moved into our home and I was watering the yard. Then all of a sudden a police car pulls up. I wave at the police car thinking they're just doing their work. No, they're not, they're coming from me. Then a second police car pulls up. Phil, I'm a man that's under 5'10". I don't know why backup was sent for, there was not any crime, there was not any disturbance. I just happened to be a black man watering the yard in a predominantly white neighborhood. Then the policeman asked me, and I'll never forget this for the rest of my life, to prove that I lived in my house. So I went in the house, got the lease agreement, shared it with these officers, and they said, thank you so much, and they left. A few moments later, a Caucasian middle-aged man walked up to my home, and he said these words, there's a lot of your kind moving in our neighborhood. I was the one that called the police. Welcome to town. So a few weeks later, Katrina happened, which was the big disaster in the world. Guess who this man came to for help during that course of time? Because he could not locate his son and he knew I'd work at the university and had connections. He came to me. Had I sat on the idea of the fact that he was just this racist man 
who just sent the police to me, I'd have never helped him. But I decided to do something that I hope as educators you and I do. We love to teach our young people vows, A-E-I-O-U. We don't tell them how significant those are. Because when we look at the word better, it's spelled B-E-T-T-E-R. And when we look at the word bitter, it's B-I-T-T-E-R. Two vows there, I and E, chain, chain the. I chose to be better in the way that I, that man dealt with me. I viewed him as a man who had not operated in spaces that were diverse. He was a victim of his upbringing. He was not a racist, he was not a bigot. And so what I think diversity does in organizations, it allows us, and you and I spoke about traveling through these spaces where we realize, oh my goodness, you know what? Different is not necessarily bad. That, wow, I have much to learn from my Australian brother. There's ways that he's lived that I have never had to live that I could learn from. That man and I were never enemies. We were just people whose paths hadn't truly crossed. But when he crossed mine, he freaked out. So what diversity does, it eliminates this ability to freak out, which happens to all of us when we experience difference if we're not well trained. And so I love the notion of diversity in a team because I think what it does is it deals with the freak out opportunities that are could happen due to a lack of exposure in that organization. Um, I've got countless stories that I could share in my educational experiences of students who um, sometimes don't believe that I could be the educator because I'm the first person that is black that they've ever had instruct them. And how you win those over and how I have to build rapport and how I have to earn my place in the classroom sometimes, how I have to wear a suit and almost have a uniform to professionalize my posture to win that credibility. I'm sitting here and I'm thinking that then if we're going to be in a position where we can recognize our common humanity and work to enhance it, if, we, if, if we're going to be in a position where we have young men who are equipped to create team, they're going to need to exercise gentleness. They're going to need to exercise patience. They're going to need yes. to um, practice forgiveness. They're going to need to take a couple of steps back and see the better in people, not the bitter in themselves. They're going to need all of these sorts of pieces, which are really about values, which are about respect. I hear young men talk about respect a lot everywhere around the world. They talk about respect. Well, they're going to need to have respect for themselves and they're going to need to have respect for other people and they're going to need to understand that that respect is earned and cannot be taken. And if that is the case, then they need to be in a position where they can allow people to grow and they must forgive the mistakes that they've made along the way. I do worry in the current culture that we've got at the moment, the cancel culture that, 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 that we live in, that there is not enough forgiveness that is being practiced. Somebody makes a mistake at some point in their life and they are dismissed forever, um, usually um, for some uh, matter which goes to form rather than substance. Um, but nonetheless, maybe that's something for another time. Henry, it's been a privilege um, uh, chatting today. I wonder whether we might come back one last time 
and uh, talk about what we've learned about how to help um, young men become good men um, and all of the different character and competency pieces. And perhaps we might even talk about our grandmothers next time as well. What do you reckon? I'm excited to talk about my grandmother, Veronica. Look forward to meeting Veronica in our next chat. Yes, and, I'll, and I'm looking forward to introducing Nana Mary to you. All right. Thank you very much, and we'll talk again very soon. This special series of the Game Changers podcast, Henry Masoma, in conversation with Phil Cummins, is produced by Oliver Cummins for Orbital Productions. The podcast is available on SoundCloud, on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, and on Google Play. If you like what you hear, tell your friends.